and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to head over to our new glass house that we just inherited from our uncle. We're also going to ride our scooter around this house and explore it, while also, I guess, trying to not get killed by a bunch of ghosts that are in the house, too. But anyway, though, uh, with all that being said, today we're going to be covering a movie from 2001 called... 13 Ghosts. Now, this movie, I must say, first and foremost, is a a movie that is close to my heart in a way. Of course, we're in the spooky season of October, and I'm, I'm covering a bunch of horror things this month. And so this one for me, though, is one I vividly remember as a kid, because this came out when I was like nine years old. And I definitely saw it in, um, didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it on home video where you could have like the DVD and everything. And, and it was just like the, uh, the, the poster of this like movie with like the, the face and, you know, the little O face and all this. And it has all the pictures in the film and it's just so good. And it's such a uh, striking image, of course. And so then seeing this movie, yeah, it just hit all the kind of points for me, really. And then as as time has gone on, you know, I, I liked this when I was a kid. And um, I've seen it since then, of course. You know, I, I've just recently watched it for, for this podcast. And it's, it's like, you've been streaming in a few different places and whatever. So I have watched it. And overall, I think this movie, in a way, it, it has an interesting kind of, kind of legacy to it. Because... It's a movie that is kind of light on the plot, if anything, but I think there's so much more to this movie that I think really uh, helps it and makes it kind of that that cult classic for people or like for, you know, just some horror fans, one of their one of their favorite movies, you know, and one of their favorite horrors. So we'll get into that about that. Uh, But this is just one that I definitely watched as a kid. I now own it on um, Blu-ray. I got the Scream Factory Blu-ray of it um, to get some information from it. And it actually looks pretty good, too. So I'm I'm glad to have gotten that. As we normally do on the show, we're going to move into, you know, talking about the movie and, um, some figures about it, the cast, how it came to be, things of that sort. Um, and then we'll move into like a plot breakdown, uh, just a little bit about what the plot is and, and just kind of have a fun little chit chat about this movie. Um, so without further ado, let's move on to those figures. So 13 Ghosts was released October 26th of 2001 and has a runtime of 91 minutes. So it gets in, gets out. This was distributed by Warner Brothers in the US and then Columbia TriStar Film Distributors International. That's a mouthful, but they did the international release of this movie. And we're looking at a budget of about $42 million. And so when we get into the numbers of this movie, so this opening weekend ranking gross of the film, it came in at number two, I think behind K-Pax apparently, uh, which is what I found out from the commentary uh, with the movie called with Kevin Spacey. Anyway, uh, but it made about $15,165,355 in its opening weekend. Overall, it uh, domestically made $41,867,960 dollars and then about twenty six million six hundred thousand dollars internationally for an overall worldwide gross of sixty eight million four hundred and sixty seven thousand nine hundred and sixty dollars and that's not even I think factoring in like home video sales and things like that which probably also did pretty well as well I didn't get into those numbers but 
But yeah, there's that. Uh, now, the critical response to this movie is a, a little different. Um, so we have a 19% on Rotten Tomatoes, which has actually came up uh, from like a 15%. So that's good. Um, with about 95 reviews. And then uh, about audience score of 49% with about a quarter of a million ratings on off of that. So, you know, if anything, it maybe didn't do well critically, but I think the audience kind of, you know, there's the defenders of this movie for sure. And then on Letterboxd, we're looking at a 2.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Um, and again, uh, so it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting, uh, if anything, it's an interesting kind of look into who likes this movie and who doesn't, uh, for sure. And so then for our cast and crew of the movie, we have Steve Beck, who I have covered one of his movies already, Ghost Ship. That was his sophomore uh, feature. Uh, this was his first feature, though. So this is his first movie he did. So literally, he just directed Ghost Ship. He didn't really do anything else in terms of directing. Um, and we'll get into, I think, how he feels about this movie in particular. But, you know, there's that. And then our writers of the movie, we have three different credited writers so we have neil marshall stevens uh rob white and then richard o video i guess ovido something like that anyway so rob white in particular he is the actual uh writer of the original 13 ghosts with william castle and we'll get into him uh, and we'll get into the remake and all you know we'll get into the original movie and, and all that kind of thing but he wrote the original 13 ghosts and he is credited on this film same thing with the house on haunted hill both original and remake he wrote both of those now neil marshall stevens he comes out of the full moon entertainment camp because he actually wrote like head of the family which is like a full moon um movie he also did sideshow which i have watched before um on on tubi uh so these are full moon entertainment by charles band so he came out of his kind of stable of writers and then richard ovidio or whoever his name is ovido he wrote the call with uh halle berry and that little pussycat wig in like 2019 2020 yeah that that's what he wrote um <laughs> So kind of mixed bag, if you will. Uh, you could kind of tell a little bit. Then we have our composer, John Frizzell, who he's had like an interesting kind of composing career. He has done everything from he did Office Space. He did Josie and the Pussycats, which I do want to do an episode on at some point. But he was the composer of that. Uh, he also ch did Child's Play 3, Texas Chainsaw 3D. He did Leatherface. He did Stay Alive. Um, so he did a couple different horror movies. Um, in particular. Gail uh, Tattersall is the cinematographer. Uh, he actually did Ghost Ship. He shot Ghost Ship. And he also shot Tank Girl with Laurie Petty back in the 90s. And he was a friend of Steve Beck's. And he was able to get the job that way, pretty much. and Because he at least had shot stuff before. And then our editors. We have three editors in this movie. So we have uh, Derek uh, Brecken. Um, Edward A. Uh, Warshikla, I believe, uh, and then Omar Dar. Uh, so yeah, those are our editors. Now, in terms of what he actually did, so Derek, he actually edited Deep Blue Sea, which if you watch this movie and you watch Deep Blue Sea, it makes sense. So there's that. 
Omar, he really didn't do anything after this, to be perfectly honest with you. But then, uh, I think he did additional editing on this, pretty much. But the the kind of dude we have, um, Edward A. Uh, Warshoka, um, he is actually, he was John Carpenter's editor. So he literally did, like, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. He did Child's Play 3. He did Body Bags, uh, Village of the Damned from 1995. A lot of John Carpenter stuff. He did In the Mouth of Madness, Vampires a lot of John Carpenter films that are, are you know in, in his oeuvre if anything and then also some of the crew too randomly so like you know you have so also we can't we have to mention K&B effects that is Howard Berger Greg Nicotero and uh, Robert Kurtz Richard Kurtzman uh, Robert Kurtzman that's what it is um, <laughs> they did these special effects for this movie they are very well known for doing all sorts of horror special effects but Howard Berger I think was kind of the um, the, the main guy on this one um, but yeah, he he did that, of course. And I think uh, this is a Canadian production. So Bill, Bill Terzakis, who unfortunately has passed away now, but he actually also um, was involved in this as well. He did uh, he did like a wrong turn too. I think he did um, and a couple different things as well. He was a special effects artist. But yeah, so KMB, of course, I mean, they're very well known for having like really great special effects. So it doesn't surprise anybody that this movie has really good special effects, which we will talk about a little bit. Yes, there's that crew. Also, fun little thing is, too, um, that uh, actually, funny enough, the stunts of this movie were all coordinated by Ken Kersinger, who is the Freddy vs. Jason Jason. So that's kind of fun. He He was also kind of a stand in for Kane Hodder. Um, in like I think Jason takes Manhattan or something like that but anyway yeah he is I think uncredited in a, a part in this movie I think he's in the beginning in the junkyard but also he did a lot of the stunts he's credited as the stunt coordinator of this movie so I thought that was kind of interesting and then in terms of our cast, we have all different kinds of people. We got Tony Shalhoub playing Arthur Criticos, um, and he was from Adam's Family Values. He was in both the um, Men in Black series. He was in both of those movies. He was on the TV show Monk. You know, he kind of had this interesting career, but this is one of his things he did. Funny enough, this movie has kind of the distinction for being a film that has three Lebanese uh, American leads, which is kind of cool. So it isn't just a bunch of white people running around, um, you know, doing stupid white people stuff. You know, it's 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 interesting. That's cool. Then you have Matthew Lillard as Dennis Rafkin. So he is, I have in my little notes, like he's Matthew Lillard. I mean, he's from Scream. He is uh, Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. He literally did both of the live action movies, but he also did uh, the voice for a while. Um, I mean, Serial Mom and uh, SLC Punk and like all these different things he's been in, uh, hackers and stuff like that. So like he's done many many things. He's he's Matthew Lillard, um, and is apparently a dear darling dear. But anyway, uh, so there's him. He plays the psychic in this movie. We have Embeth Davids who plays Kalina in this film, um, who is a kind of like soul reclaimer person and uh, spirit reclaimer, if you will. And she is uh, well known for being Miss Honey from. Tilda, but she also was in Army of Darkness, which she starred alongside Bruce Campbell with. Um, but she's in this movie as well. She's kind of had a little 
sort of horror niche, if you will. That's kind of fun for her. And then F. Murray Abraham, who's kind of a very well-known actor. I'm pretty sure he's Oscar nominated, if I'm not mistaken, or Oscar winning. I don't know, actually. But uh, <laughs> but uh, he is from, you know, Amadeus. He is in Scarface. He's uh, in this movie, but he's also in just like the Grand Budapest Hotel and like all these different things. So like uh, he's also Lebanese American, which is cool, too. Uh, so, you know, there's that. And then, uh, but yeah, they brought him on as the, the eccentric uncle, if you will, who uh, mysteriously dies and then gives his uh, nephew his house. So yeah, there's that. Shannon Elizabeth, who plays Kathy in this movie, she, of course, is uh, well known for being um, Nadia from American Pie uh, and also the subsequent sequels. Um, but she also was in Jack Frost, the horror movie uh, killer snowman thing, not the like you know, family movie. Um, So Shannon Elizabeth was in that. She was in the Night of the Demons remake from 2009. Um, She's kind of had an interesting career for herself, if if you will. She's in the first scary movie movie. So, I mean, you know, that's that's her. She's also Lebanese American, which again, why this has a distinction. But yeah, then you have some people also like Rod Digga, who is from Bust Rhymes crew, uh, the Flip Mode squad. Um, So she's a rapper. Um, So she's in this movie. And then also, I think right before this, she was a part of uh, a little known movie called The Hip Hop Witch. It's not The Hip Hop Witch. It's Da, D-A, Hip Hop Witch. And um, which is an awful, awful movie. Don't go find it. But anyway, um, but because she's a rapper, of course, she was in that. She's a musician. Uh, and she really hasn't, she didn't go on to do anything else with, with acting. She didn't really want to do that. And, you know, she just kept to her uh, her music career. Uh, but she is, like, literally kind of the best part of this movie, like, to be perfectly honest in terms of characters. Um, and then you have, like, J.R. Bourne, who he plays... Um, Ben Moss in this movie, who's the lawyer in the beginning. Um, he was in Josie and the Pussycats, which, funny enough, obviously the composer is from Josie and the Pussycats, too. Um, and then also he was in, like, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. He's a Canadian actor, so, of course, like, he's gone on to do different things. But, um, but yeah, that's a little bit about him. And then... Also, so we have those people who are like the humans of the, the piece, but then you also have some of the, the ghosts as well. Uh, they've also had some interesting um, kind of careers. There's some people who have gone on to actually have like different careers uh, or different things in the entertainment industry. I think most notably you'll you'll find uh, probably John DeSantis or DeSanta or whatever his name is. Um, he plays uh, the juggernaut. He's actually, uh, he's been on Supernatural. He he was on the series of unfortunate events. Uh, he was on the TV show in, on Netflix. He also is in this movie, but he was also in the new Adams family television show from the late nineties. He played Lurch because that fucker is six foot nine. So of course he would be anyways. Funny enough. He was actually, he's uh, on the, the Blu-ray. Uh, they, they have like a little 10 minute, um, like interview with him and uh yeah he says that like for example like he was the same size as lurch from the original tv show which i thought was kind of fun and also one of the special effects people actually gave him um a cast of his like uh head like the juggernaut's head and gave it to him as like a little gift after the 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 movie which i thought was really cute and, and wonderful so you have like someone like him but also you have like some other folks like uh 
Laura Manel and then also uh, C. Ernst Harth, which I mentioned two weeks ago. Those two actors are actually both in 13 Ghosts is playing the ghosts, but also they're both in the movie Trick or Treat with, from Mike Doherty. Because again, it was shot in Canada. So of course they, they would be. But yeah, I mean, like these ghosts, some of them just had like small time careers, really. Um, I think so many people are fascinated by Shauna Lawyer, who is she really i mean she did this movie like literally she's credited with this but she's made such an impact because she's like the fucking like angry princess so she's like a um literal and we can go through some of the ghosts but like she's literally like naked with all these slash marks on her because she um died of suicide by cutting herself in, in the bathtub but like literally like she's had her characters had kind of this little cult following which i thought was so cute and i i always under i understood because like she is so like fucking fierce and fabulous like oh my god you know it's just like people of course like love that and I, maybe you haven't really seen that either you don't see a whole lot of ghosts that are striking like that um so it, it's just like i think that's why it sticks in people's brains not just because of the tits you know of course that's that helps but you know I just think that's, like, really cool that she's had that little, like, cult following of people who love her character. And then uh, listening to, like, the Blu-ray, for example, you know, for example, like, that that woman, you know, she knew what she was getting into. I think everybody knew what they were getting into. Uh, you know, uh, she actually came from being a model, I think. And so she knew she was, like, a, obviously a gorgeous woman. And she was coming in to play this, like, beautiful woman who's a tortured soul and who, you know like killed herself pretty much you know and and all this so but yeah i think everyone knew that why they were there you know um which i thought was kind of interesting in that way but yeah i uh in terms of the cast though that's just like kind of all over the place a little bit in terms of the ghosts like they all are a little different um which I, I kind of appreciate and like. And I think the, the ghosts are a really big part of, uh, I think, why this movie does so well and uh, and why people love it so much um, in a way. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that um, when we get into like production and all that kind of fun stuff. So before going to any kind of like plot breakdown or anything like that about 13 Ghosts, I think it's important to kind of talk about, you know, how did this movie come to be and you know where did it where did it come from right and and how did it happen so to talk about that we do have to talk a little bit about where the source material is from the source material came from a movie that was in 1960 called 13 ghosts which was made by a man named william castle now if you don't know anything about william castle um the basic idea with him is that he was a literal just uh, he made a bunch of movies b movies that uh used different gimmicks throughout his his filmography um so this includes things like i think 13 ghosts is a big part of that but also like doing um house on haunted hill uh the tingler uh homicidal mr sardonicus straitjacket with joan crawford uh all, all different kinds of things. And then plus also, he produced a lot of his movies as well, but he then, um, oh, I don't know, he also produced a little movie called Rosemary's Baby from 1968, uh, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, he he's just kind of this eccentric person who, you know, was making these B-movies. Um, maybe not the same as like a, an Ed Wood, if you will, or a Russ Meyer, but like kind of in the same camp, if you will, like 
I think a lot of his stuff was very much about gimmicks and very much about like doing what they can to the audience and and getting them involved. The original 13 Ghosts actually required people to use what was called Illusiono, which is what they would look at um, the ghosts with. So they would put on these glasses when they were prompted to, to be able to see the ghosts within the home um, that is in the movie. And so, yeah, but that's a little bit about William Castle. So that's how that really came because it was just it was a part of what he had already done he had a success with um house on haunted hill um that movie actually did pretty good and so then he was able to make this 13 ghosts movie so yeah and so i'll give you a little i'll kind of give you a little like a uh, plot breakdown of of the original movie uh i have not seen it myself I and mean, you can probably seek it out if you want to but here, here's what we'll do um so according to wikipedia the plot of this is the occultist dr plato zorba bequeaths a large house to him impo- his impoverished nephew cyrus along with his wife hilda teen daughter medea and adolescent son buck cyrus is informed by lawyer ben rush that the the house comes with ghosts that Dr. Zorba has collected from all over the world. This, The will stipulates that the family must stay in the house and cannot sell it, or it will be turned over to the state. The family is shocked to find that the house is really haunted by 12 ghosts. The furnished mansion also comes with a creepy housekeeper, Elaine, who conducts seances and a hidden fortune concealed somewhere on the property. The spirits include a wailing lady, clutching hands, a fiery skeleton, an Italian chef continuously murdering his wife and her lover in the kitchen, a hanging lady, an executioner holding a severed hand, a fully grown lion with its headless tamer, a floating head, and the ghost of Zorba himself, all held captive in the eerie house and looking for an unlucky 13th ghost to free them. Dr. Zorba also leaves a set of special goggles, the only way of seeing the ghosts. A Ouija board warns the family that a death will occur in this house. Rush, the estate executor knows Zorba's fortune is hidden somewhere in the house having unsuccessfully searched for it previously. When two $100 bills fall loose out after Buck slides down the stairs Rush tricks Buck into secretly searching for the money. After Buck finds the cash under the stairs Rush carries the sleeping boy out of his room and attempts to murder him in the same way that he killed Zorba using a four poster bed equipped with a descending canopy that fatally suffocates people. Zorba's ghost appears, killing Rush by driving the terrified Rush under the canopy as Buck awakens and escapes. Rush has become the 13th ghost, and the next morning, um, Cyrus and his family count the recovered money and decide to stay. Elaine says that the ghosts have um, left, but predicts that they will return, much to Buck's delight. Uh, Unseen by the family, an unseen force blows the special glasses into smithereens, and Elaine gets a broom and permits herself a small enigmatic smile so uh and then there's nobody really of like crazy note in the movie except for margaret hamilton who plays the wicked witch of the east um literally uh the green witch uh from wizard of oz she plays elaine who's the psychic uh but everybody else i really don't know what else they would have gone on and done to be perfectly honest with you so you know Sorry. But again, I think this was really more so a movie that was about, um, really honestly, I think it was just more about like 
getting it out there with Illusiono, and um, that was kind of the whole point of of the film, if anything. But okay, so why exactly did okay? So you have this thirteen ghosts movie; it's kind of forgotten and anything and all, all that, right? Um, so how did this movie actually come to be? So we got to talk a little bit. We got to talk about the producers of this movie to to kind of talk about that. So we have Robert Zemeckis, Joel Silver, and Gilbert Adler. So these guys were the producers of this movie, and also of Ghost Ship as well. Now, Robert Zemeckis obviously has a lot of success with Back to the Future, who famed Roger Rabbit, uh, Forrest Gump, things like that. Joel Silver has gone on and done a lot in terms of, you know, his producing work. He started off with Xanadu, but he did like Jumping Jack Flash. He did Weird Science. He did the Leith Weapon movies, uh, a lot of stuff like that. So he's gone on and had a career. And Gilbert Adler as well, you know, again, they all kind of got together and and they were able to really make something but they decided to actually what what happened with that is that they really had an interest in um william castle's movies and so before this though they had success with a television show called tales from the crypt from hbo because they also produced that TV show. And then also the subsequent movies that came from that, which are uh, Tales from the Crypt presents Demon Knight, and then Tales from the Crypt presents Bordello of Blood. So they were a part of that television show, which was very popular for HBO. And so um, because of this, and they really kind of cut their teeth uh, with doing television that way, um, they decided to um, take what they had and turn and make a company uh, that is called Dark Castle Entertainment. And pretty much the goal of Dark Castle Entertainment was that they would go and like try to remake a bunch of movies uh, from William Castle's uh, filmography, uh, which started with House on Haunted Hill from 1999. That was the remake of the 1958 movie with Vincent Price. But also, um, 13 Ghosts was a part of that too. Um, and I think those were like the big ones, really. Because Ghost Ship, I don't think, is a remake. And then a lot of the other stuff that Dark Castle ended up doing um, actually aren't really remakes of William Castle movies. But there are things like Gothica from 2003 with Halle Berry. I think also the Orphan movie from 2009. Um, they've kind of had some interesting... Um, they're, they're, they're a horror company. Uh, that's what they focused on. Um this is before Blumhouse. That's a good way to kind of describe it a little bit is Dark Castle was doing a fair amount of like what Blumhouse kind of did where they were putting out horror content specifically. So Dark Castle and then Platinum Dunes came around as well to do some of those like high budget remakes of horror films like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Amityville Horror, things like that. So but this this movie I think lives in an interesting kind of place because it's not it's a remake of course but it's it's made by Dark Castle. So the thing is is that like this wasn't it, it was a little bit before those kind of like high budget even though this is a pretty good budget it's different than something like Texas Chainsaw, I think, right? Like the the remake of that from 2003. Um, it feels a little bit different because it was right before that too, which I thought was really interesting as well when I was thinking about that actually. But back to back to Dark Castle though. So yeah, these guys who were these producers, they pretty much were like fans of William Castle's work and they wanted to make the movie pretty much. And they were like, all right, bet. Like we're going to do this. It's exactly what we're going to do. 
And so, yeah. And then in terms of, of course, they got like the writer of the original movie to come back and like help with at least the story was by him. And then the other two uh, people who wrote this, of course, you know, again, he gets his credit for what it is. Um, But I think Neil Marshall Stevens and Richard um, DeOvido, DeOvido, whatever his name is, Richard D. Um, He, uh, I think they more so kind of did like the bulk of what this actual script is. Um, But yeah, so I mean, and really they decided to um, make this movie. They brought on Steve Beck really because I think, if I'm not mistaken, they were interested in him as a a commercial director. He had directed commercials um, all over the place, actually. And so he did a couple different campaigns and they kind of noticed him from doing commercial stuff uh, and they wanted to bring him on because they knew that they wanted to kind of bring in like the illusiono um, kind of gimmick, if you will, but they didn't want it to be a part of the the external you know, marketing of the movie. It wasn't like what William Castle had done. It was more so just like it was involved in the film, which I think actually works way better. Um, But yeah. And they brought in Steve Beck. Uh, They took a chance on him really, because again, he hadn't really, he had done commercials, but he hadn't done um, a film yet. And so the fact that he was able to make this movie, you know, I think was, was good because, you know, they didn't know what to expect from him really they kind of at least knew they liked his his work with the commercials but does that always translate to a feature film um and you never know apparently though james gunn also did some uh some rewrites of the script but they were uncredited uh as well uh james gunn if you don't already know he is a well-known director um (laughs) and filmmaker he uh comes from trauma he uh like directed slither and a lot of those guardian the galaxy movies he's done all of those fucking things so you know there's that but yeah i mean but yeah this movie was really it was uh it was just conceived as like, this is going to be similar of a remake to something like house on haunted Hill, where we just want to remake this classic movie from William Castle. That's really the kind of by the by of it. But I think as well, though, they wanted to bring in that illusion. like kind of gimmick as well, but they wanted to have that. And yeah, I think if anything, they really wanted it more to be just a movie that you could care about the characters in a way, kind of sort of, But, like, really, this is supposed to be kind of escapist, kind of, like, popcorn horror, really. Um, And and I think it absolutely is. Like, it it really does kind of accomplish that. Of course, this was shot in um, Canada because, of course, they get the some sort of tax breaks and, you know, all that to be able to get that. Apparently, it was very cold. They did this in January as well. So, you know, um, they shot this a little bit earlier in the year, I believe. I think they shot it in 2001. Um, It came out in 2001, of course, later in the year. It's an October release. Um, But yeah, I'm pretty sure that they actually did do like uh, this at the beginning of the year. And then they literally just like were able to really focus on um, (laughs) they were able to... uh, yeah, they were able to get this. According to IMDb, October 6, 2000 to December 15th, 2000 is when they shot it. Um, but again, I'm sure they also probably did some reshoots at some point as well. So there's that as well. But yeah, I mean, that's what at least 
that's what imdb said at least but yeah so really they shot this movie seemed like it was an interesting shoot i think steve beck at least seemed to be a good a good dude to have um he seemed to come on and know exactly what he wanted and you know to be able to translate that uh, which was good and um and yeah and you know the release of this movie if anything i think I think what it was is they, they shot it over that time. And then, of course, they had to do a lot of, like... They had to do some research shoots, I'm sure. And then also doing a lot of the VFX stuff as well. Um, that probably took up some time as well. This movie releases... And it, it's kind of weird because, like, this movie releases... One month after September 11th, so the world is kind of in, a, the U.S. especially, is kind of in a weird place right now because there's a literal terrorist attack, but also, like, um, there's so much shit coming, there was so much weird shit coming out in the, the theaters. You have 13 Ghosts, then you have Bones, which came out in, it came out in number 10, um, the same weekend, I think. Also, Donnie Darko came out around this time, too. Like, it's so odd how you have all these different kinds of movies that, that came out around this time I, I think it's so fascinating and then in terms of just like you know critical response and and all that i mean again i, I already mentioned it but you know the critical response to this movie wasn't exactly good um so you know if we look into that a little bit so the praise was directed towards the production design but it was criticized for its lack of scares and a number of strobe effects that could induce seizures which i do kind of agree with um so the website um, consensus for Rotten Tomatoes is that the production design is first rate, but 13 Ghosts is distinctly lacking in scares. Um, so you have like Ed Gonzalez of Slant Magazine, who gave the film two out of four stars, um, panning the lack of scares and predictable plot twists. However, he did commend the art direction and also stating that it's underutilized. Um Robert Roger Ebert, uh, he actually praised the production value, saying that the production is first rate. The physical look of the picture is splendid. However, he criticized the story, lack of interesting characters, loud soundtrack, and poor editing. And he put it as one of his most hated films uh, in 2005. Um, and in the years since its release and the disappointing box office performance, it has gathered a uh, cult following in a way, uh, finding success and more positive reception. Um because, yeah, I mean, I guess, like, isn't it sad, though, that apparently, like, I mean, when you really think about it, like, you know, it might have been a financial flop because, like, it did come out. It only made so much of its money back in the States, um, even though worldwide it did pretty all right. But, you know, you, you never know. Um Elvis Mitchell, though, of the New York Times said of the film, quote, what we're left with after the scares is just plain dumb. Um and yeah, I mean, I think the thing with this movie is that I I will venture to say as somebody who watched it home video wise and, and all that, this movie for me is not really so much about the plot, honestly, you know, um, that's probably the, the, the weakest part of it is, is there's not much of a, a great plot here necessarily. And even the characters, um, Albeit, you know, uh, Maggie is a wonderful character and, you know, she's kind of the best part of the movie. Uh, but, you know, even like uh, like Dennis Rafkin, like it's because it's Matthew Lillard, but, you know, he's putting his all into this this movie and he's chewing the scenery, really. But this movie to me, like it, the, the plot is not what I'm watching it for. You know, it's not what I'm seeing it for. I, 
I think the fact that this movie has the practical effects, which really just come from the fact that KMB was brought on to do it, but also because I think the producers and the director as well, I think they wanted to keep it as practical as possible, you know, which I totally appreciate. Um, I think that's really good. But also, like... I think it's the fact that these ghosts look so good. Like they, the visuals are, are really good. I can understand praising that and maybe not the story so much, which, and when you're a critic, you do have to kind of balance all of that. Um, but I think it's at least entertaining. Like this movie, it's not great on the plot necessarily, but it's a good, it's a good popcorn, like look at it movie. Like, you know, it's a, it's a fun thing to look at. And I, I can only like, I look at these ghosts and I'm just like, Oh my God. And the other thing too, is that I think the fact that each one of these ghosts has a backstory as well, I think also really adds to it, which when you watch the film, really, you wouldn't know that because it's not about that really. But I remember specifically that I was interested in the special feature that each one of the ghosts had a backstory and you could, you know, watch and see what their backstory is, um, which came from Steve Beck. And, um, and I think some of the, the producers of like having a reason of, of why they are the way they are. Right. Um, and this is exactly why I think this movie kind of continues because of people like me who were kids at this time who watched the DVD of this, who found that special feature. I'm pretty sure, I don't know exactly the author's name, but there is a, uh, there's a bloody disgusting article. I'm pretty sure it might be John Squires actually from bloody disgusting. Um, I'm pretty sure that he actually wrote something or somebody wrote something for bloody disgusting that literally talked about that featurette on the Blu-ray or on the DVD. It's on the Blu-ray too, but yeah. And just talking about how like that is kind of an iconic piece of like special features, which I do think it kind of is. Um, because people like myself, horror fans, watched it and they were like, oh my god, there's this like intricate backstory to each one of these ghosts. So that's so super cool. And I think that is kind of more of the... I think that's more of the draw of this type of movie, uh, more so than the actual piece itself and the story itself. Which is exactly why I believe it was this year where... Uh, Dark Castle has said something to the effect of wanting to do a TV show for 13 Ghosts. And to be fair with you and to be honest, I think that would be a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, You know, I think being able to extrapolate onto the, you know, onto these different ghosts and their backstories. um, I don't know how you would all kind of connect them together if you were going to do that, but I think being able to go into their stories deeper, which is kind of what the point was of having these backstories because like, Hey, if this does really good, maybe we can have like prequels or maybe we can have this kind of thing. Um, I think it definitely lends itself a little bit more to that. Um, and gives the chance to be able to, to have, um, a more fleshed out story of these, these characters and still use that sick ass, like, uh, effects that they have and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like I totally understand why, you know, why somebody would like a TV show of these characters or, or looking into their backstories like this. Cause like I said, in terms of the plot and things of that sort, um, 
there's not much but you know uh without with all that being said though we will go into a little bit of the plot of this movie um and also talk about the characters as well and uh i'll get to talk a little bit about that so in regards to our plot so we start off this movie in where else but a junkyard um so we have our ghost hunter cyrus criticos who's played by f murray abraham and his psychic assistant dennis rafkin who's played by the one and only matthew lillard they lead a team on a mission to co- uh, capture a spirit called the juggernaut who's played by john DeSantis. And uh, several men, including Cyrus, during this mission are killed uh, while the team is able to capture the ghost. Um, and then Arthur's, uh, Cyrus's nephew, Arthur, um, who's played by Tony Shalhoub, uh, he's a widower because we find out that his family, uh, there was a fire, uh, their, their uh house was burned down and then also like the wife passed away as well because we do have a little opening montage with that as well um but he's later he's informed by the estate's lawyer um for cyrus uh, ben moss played by J.R. Bourne, um that he has inherited a mansion that belonged to cyrus um so financially insecure uh arthur decides to move there with his two children uh kathy played by shannon doherty <laughs> <laughs> his two children uh kathy played by shannon elizabeth and bobby played by alex robert um and their nanny maggie who's played by raw digga so when they get to the house uh dennis meets the family as they tour the mansion so this house is all made up of glass sheets pretty much that are inscribed in latin phrases uh which dennis recognizes um, as barrier spells um and so what he discovers is that the 12 angry ghosts that he and cyrus have captured are imprisoned in this house um they're had held captive by these spells and so as he warns Arthur, though, Moss, uh, Ben Moss, he unwittingly uh, triggers the mechanism that seals the house uh, and um, releases the ghosts. And so Ben Moss ends up dying uh, when a set of sliding doors cut him in half. Um, and so then Bobby, who is the boy, uh, he sees several of the ghosts, um, including the... Um, not the angry princess, but what was it? Uh, the bound woman, uh, played by uh, Laura Manel, and then his mother, Jean Criticos, who's played by uh, I think it was uh, Catherine Alexander or Jean Alexander, something like that. Um, I think it was Catherine um, Catherine Anderson. I think her name was actually. Now that I think about it. Um, Yes, that yes, Catherine Anderson. Anyway, so Jean Criticos, he sees her, his mother, um, which again we found out that she was burned in a fire, um, and so he is knocked unconscious. And he's dragged away. So then, uh, Dennis, they they earlier found these um, these spectral glasses that pretty much allow the wearer of the glasses to see the supernatural realm to try to avoid the ghosts. They see the ghosts pretty much. So uh, Dennis uses a pair of these um, to just avoid them. The Jackal who's played by Shane Wiley. um, They are, uh, he's one of the most dangerous ghosts and he attacks Kathy and Arthur, but uh, while they're kind of fighting the Jackal, uh, they are saved by Kalina Oretzia. Uh, who's played by Ambeth Davids. So she is what's called a spirit liberator who is attempting to free the ghosts. Um, 
so Kathy ends up disappearing for some reason. Um, and so the four adults then, though, uh, they gather in the library. They run over to the library trying to, like, keep away from the ghosts. Uh, where Arthur learns that Jean's ghost is also in the house because he didn't know this. Um so, like, you know, uh, Kalina knew all this. She, like, chews out Dennis about, like, you know, this is all your fucking fault, right? And so, like, um, but she uh, but she ends up saying, like, hey, look, like, you know, your wife is in this house. She's one of the ghosts. Um, and Kalina explains, though, that this house is a machine powered by the captive ghosts that allow its user to see the past, present, and future. Um, it is... A machine made by the devil, powered by the dead, or something like that. And the only way to shut it down is through the creation of the 13th ghost uh, from a sacrifice of love. And so what he realizes, Arthur, he does, he realizes that he has to become that ghost in order to save his children. So, uh, armed with the glasses in hand, Arthur and Dennis, they enter the basement to find the children, um, and Dennis barricades Arthur behind a glass um, sheet for his protection, and so what ends up happening is that Dennis uh, ends up getting beaten to death by the hammer um, and by the juggernaut, um, two other dangerous ghosts, and it is revealed, we find out, that Cyrus faked his own death um, to lure Arthur into the house. Um, Kalina is actually his partner and lover, um, which is revealed when she knocks Maggie unconscious with a large book and promptly kisses Cyrus upon his uh, arrival. So this is why in the beginning, like, um, she ends up killing Damon, who is like another, uh, specter, like a uh, spirit liberator, if you will, um, who, by the way, the actor of that, uh, he has like a an interview on the Blu-ray as well, and I thought that was a really good interview. He's very interesting. But anyway, um, but yeah, so like he, she killed him, um, really, and then she went along with this whole kind of fake uh, death thing, um, because yeah, she was two timing. Anyway, so then Cyrus has orchestrated the abduction of Kathy and Bobby so that Arthur will become the 13th ghost, um, which will not stop the machine as uh, Kalina has claimed, but it triggers its activation though. And so then uh, Cyrus ends up killing Kalina, um, who objected to Cyrus putting the children in danger though. She just kind of thought she would get that dick and like she would, you know, get the money and all that, but she didn't realize that these kids would be put into danger. And so they, uh, he then goes and summons the ghosts to activate the machine. So in the main hall, which is like the center of the house, um, Arthur witnesses all 12 ghosts orbiting a clockwork device of rotating metal rings with his children at the center of it. And he fights Cyrus. So he sees Cyrus and he fights him. He like punches him a couple times and he fights Cyrus while Maggie, though, um, disrupts the machine's controls. Um, releasing the ghost from its power um, and then causing the machine to go haywire. And so because they're not under the control anymore of like the chants and stuff like that, um, the ghosts then pick up Cyrus and they hurl him into the moving rings, slicing him up to pieces. And then with the encouragement of Dennis's ghost, which we see, uh, Arthur jumps through the machine safely to protect his children. And then guess what happens? The walls of the machine shatter as the malfunctioning machine rips itself apart, freeing the ghosts. And then at the end of this film, we see that Jean's ghost tells them that she loves them before she disappears because all the other ghosts have like gone off and they're going to be like frolicking into wherever the hell they're going. 
And then as the family departs from the house, Maggie angrily declares that she is quitting as their nanny. And then we cut to our end credits with Mirror Mirror by Raw Digga playing over the end credits. So that's like our our basic plot or whatever of this film. I just think it's so like lit and cute. Ugh, I don't know. I, I just um like I said, the 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 plot is not exactly the the driving force behind this movie, really. Uh, but I think if anything, like, you know, it's a, it's a cute little plot. It's fine. Um, I think these cast members or these, these, uh, characters, I think if anything, like, you know, I see what Arthur's doing. Like, you know, he's very much this, uh, this guy who he's hanging on by a thread, you know, he's trying to support his family. There, there are some things though, where I just don't understand like why in the hell, if you don't have any money, right? Because listen, like, okay, so you lost your house and you lost your wife, but you're telling me you didn't have no insurance on that house. You didn't have no life insurance on the wife. No, nothing when it shit would happen. Like what? Okay. Like, and that, that house, that house had a yard and everything, but like you had no insurance on that house that maybe you could try to get something if shit was to happen, but okay. But take away all that, I guess. Like Arthur is somebody who you see is just trying to fight for his family. He is trying to, um, protect his children. And I think if anything, I can admire that in a way where he really is trying to do his best to, he's a skeptic if anything, but then he, he ends up becoming kind of the quote hero in the end in a, in a way, but I don't know. It is a little flat though. Like I feel like, but I see what they're doing. Like they want to make him, um, he, they want to take him from one thing and turn him into something else, which is, which is fine, I guess. But, but uh, we, we do have to talk about the woman of the hour, though, which because uh, everyone else is kind of boring, honestly. Um, I mean, Maggie, come on now. Like, ah, uh, like Maggie's so great. And I mean, you know, you can say what you want about like, you know, this this character or whatever. But like, I love that she is just like the audience surrogate of this this movie, really. Um, I, I don't know if she's really like playing any particular like, you know, playing up any stereotypes or anything. Cause she is one of the only people of color in the movie. I guess the other family members are like also people of color cause they're Lebanese technically, but like whatever, but they have like a white mom technically, but you know, whatever anyway. But like, I just love how Maggie is like this audience surrogate. She, and I think Rod Diggin knew that, which I also appreciate. She is kind of that person who, you know, you look at her and you're like, you know, Oh no, no do that, you know, whatever. And, and that's kind of what her character is in this movie. And, um, and bitch, she ends up saving the day, which I really appreciate as well. You know, I, I love that for, for this. And, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't get much to do in the movie, but I, I really like her and I just, um, she reminds me a little bit of like someone like a Loretta divine in urban legend. You know, I think so many people loved her character. Right. And so I think a lot of people look at Maggie and they're like, Oh, like that is a fucking great character. Like she's so good, um, in this film. And, and, um, it's interesting to see Rog Dega do something a little different as well. Um, and you know, the fact she didn't continue with acting, I totally understand, but, um, girl, we love you. Okay. Listen, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there was that. And then also like, uh, 
oh, I just found this. So apparently uh, there was a Blu-ray in 2010 where this movie actually had a double feature with House of Wax. You know what? That makes so much sense, though. That makes so much sense. Oh, my God. But, uh, but yeah, so talking about, like, the plot of this movie and talking about some of the characters, again, there's not much, but we do got to talk about the people of the hour, um, in a way, with this, with this movie, uh, the ghosts themselves. So there's 12 ghosts that are named, um, and girl, these ghosts are so good. So I'm going to go through some of these ghosts as well. Um, so we have the firstborn son. We have the torso. We have the bound woman. We have the withered lover. We have the torn prince. We have the angry princess. We have the pilgrimess. We have the great child and the dire mother. We have, which are kind of a duo. And then we have the hammer, the jackal, and then the juggernaut. So that's kind of like the, uh, the the crew we got for these 12 ghosts but 12 ghosts doesn't sound as fun um anyway but you know all of them have these like little backstories and everything like that uh so i mean if anything i will go uh because again we only have so much in this movie that we really could talk about i guess but we'll we'll talk a little bit about these ghosts why not uh that may be fun so the firstborn son is billy michaels he was a young boy who loved pretending to be a cowboy and one day another kid challenged him to a duel but billy's capcom was no match for uh the boy's real steel-tipped arrow that uh his ghost still carries around and really like he's not actually he's a mild threat um he's not really attacking anybody he just says i want to play and then uh the torso is jimmy the gambler gambino he was a gambler in the early 1900s who caught the attention of the mafia after he lost a boxing bet and didn't have the money to pay up the mafia cut him into pieces and wrapped him into cellophane mr cellophane would have been my name sorry um dumping the remains in the ocean and his uh a ghost appears as a torso with a severed head nearby and is more of a neutral spirit than actively hostile. Um, fun little fact about this is that it was actually a guy um, played by uh, Daniel Wesley, but he uh, is a double amputee, so he has no lower body. Um, but literally, he was uh, just outfitted in like a, a kind of a black like sheet or whatever, not sheet, but like a black mesh thing where they would be able to, I guess not chroma key or or whatever out his head um so but it was like a guy like this ghost was a guy it was not all cg i mean some of it was cg where they had to like take his head off or whatever but like i just think that's so cool um but yeah so that's the torso my personal favorite is the bound woman who's played by laura minnell like i said she's susan legros she was the richest girl in town and was very popular in school but her one flaw was the way she flirted and toyed with boys and men leaving a long trail of broken hearts during her senior uh prom night chet walters who was a star quarterback caught susan cheating on him with another boy and the next day um the boy was uh found beaten to death and susan had gone missing and she was found two weeks later dead but uh buried beneath the 50 yard line of the high school football field and so her ghost lures uh her ghost lures Bobby into the dangerous basement and still show, uh, shows in her prom attire, uh, bound ropes, uh, holding her arms because, uh, to quote Chet Walters, uh, 
the bitch broke my heart, so I broke her neck. And so, as she has, like, a tie around her neck, and, and just the way she, like, convulses, and, like, she's got, like, little maggots in her hair and stuff like that. I just think this is such, like, a, such a fun character, and, and, um, God, I just love her. Oh, my God. Uh, but yeah, so, girl, if I could do a costume, I would do the bad woman in a minute. Um, we then have the withered lover who is Jean Criticos. She was a happy and devoted wife and mother. She died as a result of fire injuries at St. Luke's Hospital half a year before the events of the movie. Um, and she is just uh, not dangerous, but she's benevolent. So really, you know, I think what happened there was that there was like um, some sort of like campfire that they did and they didn't like uh, put out the fire enough and like some ember came into the house or whatever and then like uh set the house on fire pretty much the torn prince who's played by uh craig olianik um he is the ghost of royce clayton who was a gifted and famous teen uh, baseball player of the 1950s who caught the eye of colleges around the u.s but he died in a drag race thanks to his challenger a greaser who cut his brake lines and his remains are still buried at the baseball diamond and his uh ghost carries uh, a baseball bat and is kind of dangerous because he like tried uh hitting dennis and like all that stuff and you know he hits like the glass and stuff like that so if anybody was to ever see him or ever be in contact with him um they would probably get hit with the bat we then have the angry princess who of course is the icon um her she was dana newman in her own life she was a beautiful but abused lady who lived in the late 20th century uh she had plastic surgeries uh to alter her perceived flaws and after a botched experiment that mutilated her eye after she was working for a plastic surgery clinic um she brutally killed herself in a bathtub at the clinic um and so her ghost is bloody naked and carries the same knife she used to commit suicide um and again, like I said earlier, this character has kind of had this interesting uh, cult following of just people because I, I feel like you hadn't seen a you hadn't seen a ghost like this that was like fully naked and just like stunning. You know, this person I think was a, a, a model really who was trying to make the switch into being an actor, and so she was stunning and gorgeous, of course. But like, uh, she actually took the lo- she took one of the longest makeups. She took like five hours because you know she's got all these. C- cuts over her she's got all these wounds um and i mean that's so vulnerable too to be in like fully naked and doing this but she she fucking did it man i i was thinking to myself i was like i wonder if that girl like if she really wanted to if that woman really wanted to like could she go to like horror conventions and just like sign shit like i feel like she could but maybe that's just me whatever um we then have the Pilgrimess, who is kind of our oldest ghost, I think. Um, she's Elizabeth Smith. She came to the North America as a colonist in order to find a new life after being an orphan in England. Um, and she, the Titanic community ostracized and ignored her and used her as a scapegoat, uh, being accused of witchcraft when crops and animals mysteriously died. She denied such accusations, but she was trapped in a burning barn, but had managed to escape unharmed. And that sealed her fate as she died of starvation after being condemned to the pillory, which is like the thing you, you the, the shackles, like they put you in the town square, um, that she carries with her ghost and her skin is badly damaged. Um, so yeah, you know, just being a woman in the fucking like 1600s, I guess. Right. So, um, that, that is the pilgrimess. Uh, and also the, the, 
actress that plays her, uh, Xantha Radley. She's also uh, gone on and done some other things. She was in like the Fog remake, and she has uh, kind of been in like different little things here and there. It's I think she's a Canadian actress, so she's pretty pretty uh, pretty dope. You have The Great Child and The Dire Mother. So The Great Child is Harold um, Shelburne, who's played by C. Ernst Harth. He's the guy who's from, um, he was in Trick or Treat um, in that little small part. But uh, he was a mentally disabled man who never outgrew diapers and had to be spoon-fed, even though he's a fully grown adult. He often makes baby sounds. Um, after being mocked, teased, and tormented relentlessly all his life, he, be- he caused a massacre at the old freak show where he and his mother, Margaret Shelburne, the dire mother, lived. And some of the freaks had kidnapped and killed his mother. As a joke one night, um, the circus owner Jimbo had uh, Harold mutilated beyond recognition, so his ghost appears as Harold did in life with a small patch of hair, a bib covered in vomit and cloth diapers. He still holds the ax that he was used to kill his enemies. And then as I stated on top of that, so the dire mother is Harold's mom. She's a shy little lady only standing three feet tall. So she couldn't, um, ever stand up for herself and so at the the freak show where she lived she was sexually abused by the tall man another circus freak and gave birth to harold so then harold uh was her love of her life pretty much like that was the heart of her life and so um she smothered and spoiled him from infancy and never stopped as he grew um and so like a weird thing of what arrested development, I guess. But then um, the two were abused to the point where Harold killed the entire circus after uh, Margaret was killed and they remained together with Harold being protective. And she's more of a neutral spirit than anything more like the torso, I guess. Uh, then we get into some of the more like violent people. So then you have the hammer um, who's played by Herbert Duncanson, who also is on um, the Blu-ray as well. He actually, funny enough, he was a stand in in the movie at first. And then the guy who I don't know who it is, he was originally cast to play uh, that guy left. And so they pretty much asked like, Hey, do you want to be the, the hammer pretty much? And uh, he, he is. So that's kind of cool, but he was a happy and honest family man and blacksmith in the late 1890s. He's also a black man uh, as well. Um, George Markley was his name and he was falsely accused of stealing uh, by a higher up named Nathan um, and threatened with exile from their um, old Western town. And so, weirdly enough, I actually think that this guy, um, Herbert, I, I don't know if he, maybe he got a different script or whatever. I think he said in the the little interview, he said that um, pretty much what had happened was that the hammer was, uh, I think he was, I think he said that he was accused of uh, sexual assault from like a white woman, which I don't think is the case. I think what happened was that, I mean, obviously that was something that people did say back then um, about black men, especially of like, Oh, they like assaulted my wife or whatever, blah, blah, blah. They need to die and be lynched. Uh, Horrid. But, uh, but no, it was more so that like he was accused of stealing. It was threatened with exile, knowing that he was innocent. George stood up to Nathan and he refused to leave. Um, And pretty much they killed his family. That's what happened is that these white people killed the guy's family um and so because of this he took a hammer a blacksmith hammer he tracked down nathan and his friends and they beat them to death but then what ended up happening is that the townsfolk chained him to a tree outside of his shop and they drove railroad spikes into his body so his left hand was cut off and his hammer was crudely attached to it and his ghost is one of the more angry spirits and is partially responsible for dennis's death um then we get into kind of 
also the icon of the hour, along with the angry princess, is the jackal, which is played by Shane Weiler. Born to a prostitute in 1887, Ryan Kuhn um, developed a sick appetite for women, uh, attacking and uh, raping them uh, at night. And so seeking to be cured of his insatiable appetite, he did commit himself uh, to Boar Hamwood Asylum for treatment. And after several years of solitary confinement, he went completely insane, scratching the wall so violently that his fingernails were completely torn off. And in response, he was permanently kept in a straitjacket, uh, tying it tighter whenever he acted out, which was contorted his limbs. And after gnawing through his straitjacket to get free, they locked his head into a cage and sealed him away in the basement in a cell. Um, he developed a hatred for humanity, screaming madly and cowering whenever anybody approached him. And so then, because this is the 1890s, when the asylum burst into flames, he chose to stay behind and perish in the fire while everyone else escaped. So his ghost carries his torn straitjacket and uh, with the torn cubic uh, head cage. It is called a sign of Hell's Winter. Um, he is one of the more aggressive and violent ghosts, um, attacking and nearly killing Kathy before Kalina saves her. Um, and yeah, I think, if anything, the jackal is like... That and the angry princess, I think, are the most striking out of all of these people, out of all these ghosts, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, you know, that's like an iconic image of him. I mean, just like being fucking scary, dude. Like, you don't want to run into that guy, right? So, like, I I totally get it. And then we finally have the juggernaut, who is uh, Horace Breaker Mahoney. He was born very disfigured. He was an outcast his whole life. His mother abandoned him as a, at a tender age, and his dad put him to work in the junkyard using his strength to crush cars. But after his dad died, he went insane. He would take motorists and hitchhikers and tear them apart with his bare hands and feed the remains to his dog. And after several of these murders, um, which apparently he killed, pe he killed nine people in life. Um, but then a SWAT team came and killed him when he broke free of his handcuffs. Uh, so like as a ghost, he remained at the junkyard with his body riddled with bullet holes, killing intruders. So both Dennis and Cyrus remark that his kill count numbered in the forties, uh, which makes his ghost one of the most evil and dangerous of the 12. So I think he killed nine people in life and then he killed like f way more people uh, after death. So yeah, but those are the 12 ghosts at least. And, and like I said, I think like, um, you know, they, they do want to develop this into a, a TV show and, and all that. And I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I think it would be interesting to look into their, their backstories and to be able to kind of glean, um, some sense of entertainment off of it. Cause we, we like spooky shit, but, uh, but yeah, those are the 12 ghosts, their little backstories. And, and I think like, if anything, um, I'm trying to think of like, what else I could say about this film. I mean, in particular, like, I think this is an interesting one because it it really is more so like, you know, House on Haunted Hill, I feel like. I feel like those are in the same camp because they were made by the same place. Um, but like this one doesn't remind me of like, you know, the other remakes that came about, you know, that were like the Texas Chainsaw remake and the Amityville Horror remake and the Hells Have Eyes remake and all these other ones. I feel like this one is an earlier ad adapter of that, but I put it more into like the House on Haunted Hill and like um, this movie, of course, as well. Um, but I, I really do think like 
this movie does stand on its own. And I think that's why people kind of like it too, is like the fact that it stands on its own. It is a remake of a, a story, but it does something different. And I think it just stands by itself. And I really like that. Um, and I think if anything, this movie is just very entertaining. Um, again, the, the plot is not exactly great. Uh, it's not exactly, uh, you know, winning any Emmys or Oscars here. Right. Uh, but I think overall, like this movie is entertainment. It has some dark comedy in there. Um, it's pretty to look at, you know, and, and the Blu-ray is really nice to look at too. And I think if anything, like I at least give it some props for that. Um, and I, I think that if anything, it's, Something where I think a lot of people, especially of my age, you know, saw this when they were younger and they really attached to it um, because it was one of these home video releases. I think that in House on Haunted Hill, I didn't grow up with House on Haunted Hill, but like, I think that was another one too that people really like loved and watched a bunch. So, because again, it's something so different from the, uh, original source material but it does stand on its own and i think that's what dark castle was able to do with those remakes um and i can really appreciate that you know and and uh again if anything i i give the praise where it needs to be i mean the effects of this movie are really good i think the production designer um did such a good job with just how they made this house you know, this location, but also just like how the fuck they like were able to, to shoot this thing. And I give credit to Steve Beck of like, I was listening to his commentary because if you get the Blu-ray of this, or if you have the Blu-ray, you may have already listened to it. Um, uh, the guy, Justin beam, I believe, uh, of Revan entertainment. He did a lot of the special features for scream factory, uh, of this Blu-ray. And he does the the commentary with uh, Steve Beck, which they did on Zoom. This was in 2020, so it's a little bit newer. But uh, I think, if anything, and the funny thing is about the commentary that they do, it's it's a commentary, but it's really more of an interview, kind of really, which I'm not opposed to actually. Um, you know, because there is another commentary on there with actually Steve Beck, Howard Berger, and the production designer. But uh, if you really want that kind of technical thing, but really uh, the the Steve Beck uh, commentary is more so kind of a, a an interview with Justin and him. And but anyway, but they talk about this movie and they they talk about all sorts of stuff, which is where I kind of gleaned some of my information from. But I think really that if anything, Steve Beck has he likes the fact that people like this movie um you know i don't think it was maybe a favorite of his you get what i'm saying um but i think he's he's at least fairly content with the legacy this movie has had and the fact that he was able to make it and all of that i don't think he's like super passionate about it from what it sounds like but i think if anything he's happy to exist and he's happy that people like it you know and that's all you can ever really ask for i guess is kind of what he said really if you listen to the commentary um that you know i'm i'm like you know what like that's that's the best thing you can do right is just be like you know what i'm just trying to do something cool i'm just trying to make a movie and uh, i'm just trying to do this and whether or not i love all of it you know um at least this one i don't think got too switched around all the time i think ghost ship and i don't know what his thoughts on are on ghost ship necessarily i mean maybe listen to my episode about it and maybe i remember it but like uh 
I think with Ghost Ship it was a little different because Ghost Ship start uh, Ghost Ship started off as something that was different um, than what it ended up being, and uh, I think this that that shift started happening while they were shooting Ghost Ship, whereas I don't think that that really happened in Thirteen Ghosts, which was good. So you know, if anything, hopefully he gets something out of this movie and he enjoys the fact that people like it. And that's exactly why I'm covering it. That's exactly why I wanted to cover it because it's a movie that I, I remember watching as a kid and I, I it's always kind of been in my life in a way. And it's something I really appreciate and I enjoy, you know, and, and I really do, I really do appreciate and like it. And I think it's a great spooky movie. You know, it's not really all that scary necessarily, but I really do think it is such a, it's such a fun little ride and it's so it's something fun to watch as an example of early 2000s horror and and being able to kind of get off of of that you know and and be able to kind of see like here's what 2000s were doing with horror you know so I do like that. Uh, in terms of where you can find this, so as I stated, uh, Shout Factory, Scream Factory, did do a Blu-ray release of this in 2021, I think it was, or whenever they released it. Um, so they ported some of the stuff over from the, the DVD, but also they did some new things as well um, in terms of like a commentary with Steve Beck, um, some of the uh, Shannon Elizabeth, uh, John DeSantis, Gilbert Adler, Herbert Duncanson. Um, they have interviewed some of those people from this, which is cool. Um, so that's nice. And then, and also the, the transfer looks pretty good too, but this is also on, um, it makes the rounds on HBO max here and there. I just watched it on max not too long ago too, is, uh, in September actually. So, um, which is when I'm recording this, but, uh, but yeah, so you can find it streaming somewhere, you know, I think if anything, maybe wait until this like streams somewhere where either you can watch it for the free or also, um, maybe if you already have a subscription to like some stars or max or whatever, maybe wait until it's there. I don't, I don't know if I would necessarily, uh, I mean, I paid money to get the Blu-ray of it, but now I own it and I can watch it whenever I want, but maybe, maybe if you want to like hold off on that, um, but hey, maybe if you want to rent it, go ahead. You know, that's up to you. But like, I, I can't tell you what to do. But um, but yeah, I think for, for myself to kind of close out, I would say if anything, this movie is a fun little ride to have. I think if you want to get a few friends together, watch this film. Um, if you're like horror heads like myself, you know, and it's one you maybe already watched. But I always think it's a fun one to watch and enjoy and and uh I don't think you'll be, I think if you go in with the right expectations of like, this movie doesn't have much of a story plot really to it, uh, that's strong, but everything else, I think just like the look of it, the special effects of it, things of that sort, I think that really does a lot for this film. And I think that's why people come back to it and they love it, you know, every time they see it, you know, and, and, uh, I, I think you'll enjoy yourself if you go in with the right expectations and, you know, definitely a, a great little movie to add to your, to your spooky movie collection or, or to watch during October or when you want to get in that spirit. Uh, I definitely recommend it um, on that front, at least for sure. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so via email at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com in case you want to give any movie or episode recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd like to just say, hey, I'm open to all of it. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can do so on Instagram and Instagram threads at Cult Cinema Circle. I tend to post what I'll be covering for the next week on there, post stories, things like that. 
on X. I'm at Cult Cine Circle on there. I don't really post a whole lot, but if you want to follow the show, it's there for you to follow. And then on Letterboxd, I'm at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On there, I log little movie reviews. I'll log what I'm watching. And then it's also a nice way to kind of see what I might be covering on the show in the future. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Count Dracula, a 15th century prince, is condemned to live off the blood of the living for eternity. Young's lawyer, Jonathan Harker, is sent to Dracula's castle to finalize a land deal, but when the Count sees a photo of Harker's fiancée, Mina, the spitting image of his dead wife, he imprisons him and sets off for London to track her down. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, family, just so we're all clear, Miss Maggie does not do windows. Okay? Take care. Bye.